so as we continue our verse-by-verse study in the Gospel of John, we're finding ourselves today right in the middle of chapter 17. Now, if you're with us last weekend, you know that uh, chapter 17 is all about the high priestly prayer. All right, so we're going to get right into it this morning. Uh, What exactly is the high priestly prayer? If you're taking notes, it's an intimate intercession from the Son to the Father for his disciples. It's an intimate, a loving uh, intercession, a loving prayer from the Son of God to his Father for his disciples. Now, it's very interesting to me that when you look at what Jesus uh, prayed to his Father later on in this prayer, specifically in verse 20, you find out that he wasn't just praying for 11 guys in an upper room 2,000 years ago, but that he was actually praying for everyone who would ever put their trust in him in every generation. Check it out either in your Bibles or on the screen. Jesus says in verse 20 to the Father, I do not ask for these only, these 11 guys in the room, but also for those who will believe, who will trust in me through their word. And it all started on the day of Pentecost. All right, so 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, 10 days after the ascension of Jesus Christ back into heaven, after the sun went up, you tell me who came down. Okay, so 50 days after the, after the resurrection, 10 days after the ascension, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, the Holy Spirit of God came down and the church was born. All right, so after those disciples on the day of Pentecost were indwelt by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, what did they do? I'm talking about the book of Acts here. What they did is they took the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth. This is important. You need to know that they also, the apostles and their associates, from right around AD 45 all the way to right around AD 95, what did they do? They wrote down the revelation that the Lord had given them. And that revelation is called the New Testament. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ contained within the New Testament has been proclaimed not to M millions, but B, billions, for to billions of people for the last 2,000 years. And so if you're here today and you have heard this gospel, I'm not talking about the bad news of meritorious works salvation because nobody can get saved by being a good boy or a good girl. I'm talking about the true gospel. I'm talking about the gospel of grace. And so if you have heard the true gospel of Jesus Christ and you have believed in that gospel, I want you to raise your hand right now, loud and proud, and leave it up until I ask you to bring it down. All right, praise God. All right, so look at this. Keep your hands up. Jesus says to the 11, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Ladies and gentlemen, Jesus' prayer has been answered. You can put your hands down and you can put your hands together and thank the Lord that his prayer has been answered. His prayer has been answered. His prayer has been answered. We're here today. 
Praise God. That excites me more than whatever's happening at 6.30 today. <laughs> Look at verse 13. If you're looking at verse 13, just say amen. I know you're there. Oh, by the way, church family, can you tell our visitors, why are we starting in verse 13? Yeah, that. All right. Yep. All right. So verse 13. Jesus to the Father. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Don't forget, he's not just praying for 11 guys. He's praying for everyone who's put their trust in Jesus. He wants us to have joy. And that's important, why? Verse 14, I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world just as I am not of the world. All right, so in his high priestly prayer, four points today as we uh, go through this passage, but what did Jesus pray for? You need to know that first of all, Jesus prayed for our joy. Now, if you were here last week, you know that Jesus is our high priest right now under the new covenant. He's at the right hand of the Father, and he's praying for you and I right now. And so what's one of the things that he prays for when he thinks about you? He's praying for your joy. And here's why he's praying for your joy, because he knows it's hard to live in a fallen world. How many of you guys know that Jesus was not just fully God, fully, he was fully man? He knows what it's like to go through this world. He knows the heartache. He knows the troubles. He knows the difficulties. Okay, so Jesus knows what you're going through, and what is he doing? He's praying to his Father that you would be joyful people. Did you know the Lord wants you to be joyful people? Thank you, three people. <laughs> Everybody just smile for a minute. Be joyful, right? Let the Lord's prayer be answered, right? No, in all seriousness, the Lord wants you to be joyful people no matter what you're going through. And that's what he's praying about for you at the right hand of the Father. Now, where does joy come from? Okay, let's look at it, let's find it. It's in verse 13. If you read too fast and you just keep on moving, you're gonna miss it. Okay, so Jesus praying to the Father, says, he says in verse 13, but now I am coming to you and I want everybody to say these things. These things I speak in the world. Okay, so what in the world is he talking about? He's talking about these things, is his word, his words. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so the Lord in his prayer in chapter 17 is just repeating what he already told the disciples in the upper room in chapter 15. All right, so just turn, I think, one page to the left. Look at chapter 15, Verse 11, chapter 15, verse 11. In the same upper room, Thursday night, this is the instruction part of the upper room discourse. And he says in chapter 15, verse 11, these things, everybody say these things. All right, these things I have spoken to you. What's he talking about? He's talking about his words. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full, all right? So joy comes from these things, these things that Jesus spoke. He's talking about his words. Therefore, from this simple syllogism, we see this. 
All right, so what's a syllogism? A syllogism is when you have one or two, um, one, two, or more premises where you come to a conclusion. All right, so premise number one, Christ is God. If you guys have not received that yet, um, from way back when we started the book of John, I think like five years ago, right? But whenever we started the book of John, right, what's the main theme of the Gospel of John? The main theme of, the, of God, the Gospel of John is the words and works of the great I am. Who's the great I am? Jesus Christ. Man, that's the theme, the deity of Jesus Christ. It's in all the Gospels, but especially in the Gospel of John. God in the flesh, all right? So premise number one, Christ is God. Premise number two, these things, the words of Christ, bring joy. So what conclusion can we draw from these two premises? Number three, conclusion, the words of God bring joy. All right, so where can we find the words of God? Are the words of God only in the red letters in the New Testament? Yes or no, you tell me. No, no, ladies and gentlemen, 2 Timothy 3.16, all, all scriptures given by inspiration of God. Literally in the Greek, all scripture has been breathed out by God. Genesis all the way through Revelation. We can make a strong case for the inspiration of the scriptures in Old Testament, and we can make a strong case for the inspiration of the scriptures in the New Testament. We're talking about Genesis through Revelation in the original manuscript. This is breathed out by God. It is inerrant, it is infallible, and it is inspired by God. If you come to Calvary, that's what you need to know. It's one of our bedrock beliefs here in this church that the Bible doesn't just contain the Word of God. Ladies and gentlemen, the Bible is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. And if, how many of you guys believe God is perfect? All right, so if God's perfect, doesn't, that, doesn't it follow that His Word is perfect? Right? But what drives me crazy is that when imperfect, arrogant people say, no, it's not the word of God. There's errors in it. Ladies and gentlemen, there's not one error in this book. Not one. The problem is not with a perfect God. The problem is not with the perfect Bible. The problem is with the imperfect you. So just keep looking and keep praying and put the defensive walls down and ask the Lord to show you and eventually you'll see that this is God's word. Okay, and so all scripture brings joy. I love what Warren Wearsby said. He said, the believer does not find his joy in the world, but in the word. All right, so what is the world? I already defined this one or two weeks ago, but uh, I know we have visitors. Okay, so what is the world? He's not talking about the beautiful planet Earth with trees and rivers and oceans and mountains. Right? We all love our world. God created the world. He's not talking about that. When he's talking about the world, he's talking about the fallen world system and the way they, unregenerate, Christ-rejecting people, think and behave. Is everybody clear with me this morning? And by the way, when I say that, here's, here's the posture. Here's the attitude. I'm not doing this because I used to be part of the world. I, I'm just one sinner sharing with another sinner how to find bread. 
Okay, so none of us are doing this. None of us are being arrogant here. We praise God that the Lord delivered us from the world. Okay? But we have to define it. So what is the world? The world is the fallen system and the way they believe and um, think and behave. And you know what it's all about in the world? You guys know what it's all about. Three things. Pride, pleasure, and prosperity. That's it. Another way to say it, status, sensuality, and stuff. Right? Status, egotistical pride, sensuality, by the way, outside of marriage, sensuality and pleasure within marriage is a gift from God. I'm not talking about, I'm talking, you know, within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, sensuality is a gift from God. Okay, I'm talking about outside of marriage. Yeah, I hear that amen there. <laughs> My face turning red right now? Okay. All right, so pride, pleasure, prosperity, materialistic pro- prosperity, right? And so it's called stuff, thinking that stuff can f- fulfill me. Okay, what are we talking about? We're talking about the world's way. And so the way of the world is one when somebody thinks and behaves as if they can find fulfillment in status and sensuality and stuff. In other words, it's all about me, 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 me. Now let me ask you a question. Are selfish people joyful people? No way. Some of the most miserable people on earth. Critical Angry, upset, why? Because their expectations are all about pride, pleasure, and prosperity. They think they can get that for themselves. And how many of you guys know it never happens from the world? So they're always, their expectations are never being met. And so they keep more, 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 more worldliness, more, 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 more sin, and they're never satisfied. Let me put it this way. All right, so if joy is water, and the world is a well, you need to know that that well is empty. Right? If joy is water, and the world is a well, you need to know that well is absolutely empty. But what do people do every day in our, in our world? What they do is they go to the well of the world, and they take the bucket of status, and they put that bucket down in that well, thinking that they can find fulfillment and joy, and it's all about me and my status and my egotistical pride and my self-centeredness. But guess what, ladies and gentlemen, when you put that bucket down into the bottom of that well, here's what you're gonna hear, clank. And you're gonna pull that thing up, and there's not gonna be anything in there. Listen, you could get temporary excitement from the fact that people are lauding you, but temporary excitement is not the same thing as lasting joy. But that's the world. That's what you see on TV, that's what you see in movies, that's what you see on billboards, that's what you see in technology, that's what you see on social media, that's what you see in the press, that's what you see at work, that's what you see, sadly, in some people's homes. It's all about that. What else? People go to the world, 
right? They take the bucket of sensuality outside of marriage. I'm talking about pornography. I'm talking about risque movies and videos. I'm talking about affairs on your wife or your husband or sex outside of the covenant of marriage. And you put that thing down in that well of the world. And guess what? It hits the bottom and it's clank. And you pull that thing up, and listen, you can get excitement for a little while, but how many of you guys know excitement? Temporary excitement is not the same thing as lasting joy. You are not going to find lasting joy in sensuality outside of marriage. You're not going to do it. It's not there. And other people go to the well of the world and they put down the bucket of stuff thinking that they can be filled with more riches or more possessions or whatever it is. And there's nothing wrong with being rich. Abraham was rich. But listen, it's all about what drives you. What do you think fulfills you? And people, money, 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 clank, pull it up. No lasting joy. If joy is water, And the world is the well, the well's empty. But if joy is water and the word is the well, you don't even need a bucket because that well is overflowing. Overflowing, Christian? Overflowing. All you gotta do is stand up next to it and you can drink, drink, drink until your heart is content. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and I forgot the rest, okay? But it's all there and you can just take it in. Now, you guys know, I'm not just talking about reading the word. No, 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 no. I'm not talking about just reading the word. I'm talking about reading it. I'm talking about taking time and meditating on it. I'm talking about studying it. And more important than anything else, I'm talking about living it out. True joy comes from not just being hearers of the word, but being doers of the word as well. That's the combination by God's grace that brings us joy. Man, You know, sometimes I just want to jump up and down and flip, but I'm trying to help you. Church family, I'm trying to help you. That is the recipe. That's the combination that'll really bring you lasting joy in your heart. Hearing it and doing it all by God's grace. And that leads us back to verse 14. Jesus said in verse 14 to the Father in prayer, not just for 11 guys 2,000 years ago, but for everybody here that loves the Lord, has trusted in him. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I, Jesus said, am not of the world. All right, so in the midst of a world 2,000 years ago, that was bent on pride and pleasure and prosperity. In the midst of a world 2,000 years ago, right, that was bent on the whole thing of status and sensuality and, and stuff, right? What did Jesus do? Jesus lived loud and proud. Jesus lived out his Father's word in the midst of a perverse and crooked generation. And what was the result? The result was that they hated him. They hated him. Now, how many of you guys know no servant is greater than his or her master? So if they hated him, guess what? You live loud and proud, they're gonna hate you too. 
I don't want you to turn there, I'm just gonna read it to you because we already covered it, but in John chapter three, Jesus said this. He said, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. What does that mean? That means that Jesus Christ is the light of the world and thank God he came into this sin-dark world and he shone his light loud and proud. He's the light of the world, but guess what? He also said, you are the light of the world. And so when you and I rub shoulders, right, with people who are in the world, here's what often happens. The light of Christ in us shines on their life and they may not say it, But a lot of times, their attitude is this. Your light is making me uncomfortable. I don't like the fact that you're shining your light on me. Stop shining on me. It's kind of like when I first started preaching when they installed these big lights, and it's like, this is uncomfortable, right? I don't really like it, and I'm getting used to it. But but, but, but here's what I want you to know, that that's gonna happen. And and so when you're doing that, when you're living out loud, living loud and proud, shining the light of Jesus on other people through your lips and through your life, what's gonna happen is a lot of people are gonna be uncomfortable and they're gonna start avoiding you. Some of you are thinking right now, that's why that person hasn't called me back. Well, yeah, you're too bright, sister. (laughs) You're too bright, brother. And of course, I'm joking. We can never be too bright, right? But it's the light of Jesus Christ shining on them, and they don't like it. So they're gonna avoid. Other people are gonna actually hate you. It's like, man, praise the Lord. Pastor, thanks so much for encouraging me today. But it's true. I'm just going verse by verse. Some people are gonna hate you. They're gonna hate you in the classroom, in your school, They're gonna hate you in your workplace. They're gonna hate you in your neighborhood. Why? Because you're living out loud. And the light of Jesus is coming out of your lips and coming out of your life, right? So that's the bad news. But how many of you guys are glad that verse 14 follows verse 13? You see the flow here? Do you see the logic here? Verse 14 follows verse 13. What does that mean? That means verse 14, right, where they're going to hate you and life's gonna be hard, follows verse 13. Good news, verse 13 is the joy of Jesus will sustain you when that happens. Does that make sense to you guys? How many of you guys are glad that even when people don't like you or avoid you, you still got the joy of Jesus in your heart? Right? Is anybody glad about that? Okay. Look at verse 15. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So praise God right now, Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father is praying for you, and he's praying that the Lord would protect you, the Father would protect you from the devil. Praise God for that. Man. Peter, Peter, the devil has, this, has, has uh, desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you. Praise God. He's praying for you too. And listen, it's not gonna be easy in this world. You'll have the joy of Jesus, but it's not gonna be easy in this world if you live loud and proud. 
Christ. And so praise God that he's praying for you um, while you're on the battlefield. And it's gonna be hard. And the enemy is gonna attack you. He's gonna attack your loved ones. He's always trying to stir things up. He's always trying to cause disunity. Right? But, 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 but here's what we gotta do. Right? Be sober, be vigilant, for our adversary, the devil, walks around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, resist him. So Christian, while we're down here in a fallen world, on the front lines, just keep resisting the devil. Even though his head, the head of the serpent, was severed at the cross and the resurrection, even though his head has been severed, how many of you guys know his tail still swishes? And so it's swishing like crazy. And so it'll swish until he's thrown into the lake of fire someday. And so, hey, put the battle gear on and praise Jesus that he's praying for you. And so verse 16, they are not of the world just as I'm not of the world. Here it is. I love it, love it, love it. You guys hear me praying this a lot. Sanctify them in the truth. Everybody shout out your word. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I have consecrated myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. In his high priestly prayer, what did Jesus pray for? He didn't just pray for our joy, he also prayed for our sanctification. Sanctify them, Father, through your truth. Your word is truth. And so in the context, the word sanctify means this. It means to be set apart from the world's way to God's way. To be set apart. Okay, so justification, sanctification, glorification. I already went through all this a thousand times with you guys. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Praise God for his gift of salvation. And once you are saved, sanctification begins. And what is God's will for you and me? To be set apart from the world's way to God's way. What's the world's way? It's all about pride. It's all about pleasure. It's all about uh, uh, materialistic prosperity. Okay, so we're supposed to be set apart from that kind of thinking to God's way. Where do we discover God's way? Right here. You just gotta open it up. Writing in, in his word. You find God's way in God's book, okay? And so that's why Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is truth, ladies and gentlemen. Regarding this, Paul wrote this to the Christians in Rome. Now just hold that for a second uh, because I, uh, verse one, it comes before verse two, all right? So, a lot of you guys have already memorized this. Verse one, it, but it's important to understand who he's talking to. He says in verse one, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable um, service or spiritual act of, of service, depending on what translation that you have. Okay, so, but listen to this. Verse one, I beseech you therefore, what? Brethren or sistren. Okay, so who's he talking to? He's talking to Christians here. Everybody with me? Now we're ready for verse two. Do not, Christian, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
How many of you guys know that sometimes born again Christians who are going this way in the sanctification process, for whatever reason, the devil's a liar, they turn around and they start pursuing the world again. Now there's some theologians out there that say that never happens, give me a break. I'm not a theologian in some kind of seminary, I'm a pastor of a church and I know for a fact that born again Christians sometimes are lured by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It happens. Okay, so if that may be you, or maybe you watching right now, here's what you need to know. This is for you. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't be all about pride, pleasure, and prosperity. Stop thinking that you can get fulfilled by status or by sensuality outside of marriage or, or, or stuff. No, 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 no. Don't be conformed to this world. What do you gotta do? You gotta turn away from that. You gotta be set apart from that and open the book and now be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Not just reading it, but also meditating on it and studying it, and most important of all, living it out. And that's the only way you and I as Christians are going to, last two lines, prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's sanctification, ladies and gentlemen. We're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But listen, Christian, listen. God wants you to be sanctified. He wants me to be sanctified. And so we gotta stop going in the world's way and we got to be set apart and start going in God's way. So the question is, how often are you in the word of God? Right, time for application. How often are you in the word of God? Are you in it daily? I love the fact that D.L. Moody wrote this in the front of his Bible. He, he wrote it down. This book will keep you from sin or sin will keep you from this book. This book will keep you, not your from, but this book will keep you from sin. Sorry, my bad or sin will keep you from this book, okay? So yeah, that's absolutely true. So, so here's, here's what I wanna plead with you. I have no problem pleading with people. I wanna plead with you, stop letting sin keep you from this book. Turn from your sin. Turn from the world and make a commitment to get into God's word every single day. I try to put this up on the screen at least once a year, but maybe your commitment should look like this. Can we see the next screen, please? Some of you gotta make that commitment. By the way, I hear this coming up a lot from this platform here at Calvary. This whole thing of have your devotions, get in the word of God. That's not by accident. I think it's the spirit of God trying to reach some of your hearts. And so maybe that needs to be your commitment. Starting tomorrow, no Bible, no breakfast. You say, I'll go hungry. No, just get up a little earlier and the Wheaties will still be waiting for you when you're done with your devotions or the steak and eggs or whatever you eat. Okay, so man, make a commitment. In other words, do whatever it takes. Because here's the bottom line, you can answer this out loud. What's more important, physical food or spiritual food? Spiritual food. Ladies and gentlemen, here's what you need to know. The human body, yes, yes, it is amazing. God created the human body. It is absolutely amazing, but 
The body is just a shell that houses the real you. The real you is the spiritual you. By the way, young man, when you're looking for a wife, don't just primarily look for, or don't primarily look for outward beauty. Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord shall be praised. And it's better to be with the right one for a little time than the wrong one for a long time. None of this is in the notes. I don't know where this is coming from right now. Where are we at? My goodness, no Bible, no breakfast, right? Okay, so, so, so the, your, your body is just the house, the, the, the shell of the real you. The real you is the spiritual you. Okay, and so here's, here's what I wanna encourage you to do. Make sure you're giving nourishment to the real you. Right, this is your spiritual breakfast. This is your spiritual lunch, your spiritual dinner. Paul said, put it this way. He said, though our outer self is wasting away. Can I get a witness on that? Man, the older we get, what is going on with these aches and pains? Man, I just got, I got one right now. I just like, stop it, right? So though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self, the true you, the true me, is being renewed day by day. All right, so where does that renewal come from? Jesus told us right here, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So don't let sin keep you from this book. Let this book keep you from sin. Make a commitment today. Have a time, have a place, have a plan. I left my phone in the office, but I was gonna show you, like I showed the other two gatherings, that on my phone, I have the app. I have the Blue Letter Bible app. Calvary Chapels, we love blue letter Bible, okay? And so that will, that's a helpful resource as you're going through the word of God to go to blue letter Bible and understand what you're reading. There's great men and women there who rightly handle the word of truth, blue letter Bible. I also have the uh, Enduring Word app. How many of you guys ever heard of Dave, Pastor David Guzik? Man, only, only 20 of you, okay. I should have put this on the screen. And everybody say enduring word. Please say David Guzik. Okay, so this is a Calvary Chapel pastor. He's got the whole Bible from Genesis through Revelation on his app. So if you're reading, you're like, I don't know what this means. Enduring word. You can find out. You got some help. Um, and then if you got a question, I got the Got Questions app on my phone. Blue Letter Bible, Enduring Word, Got Questions app, that'll get you started, but make a commitment, have a time, have a place, and have a plan. Look at verse 20 now. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all, here's Jesus' prayer, that they all may be, everybody shut out the word, one. One. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. You see the motivation there? He wants us to be unified that the world may believe that the Father sent the Son. And so you see Christ's heart for the world. He's not willing that anybody should perish. 
Verse 22, he says, the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one. Everybody shout out the word one. Even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one. Why, Jesus? What's your motive? Here it is. He said it again. So that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them even as you loved me. In his high priestly prayer, what did Jesus pray for? Our joy, our sanctification, and we just read it. He prays for our unity. He prayed for it, and he's still praying for it. Unity. Now, good news, bad news. Positionally speaking, the Lord's prayer has been answered. Praise God. Practically speaking, no, it hasn't. And so positionally speaking, um, what Jesus said to the Father, it's a done deal. Practically speaking, no. All right, so we're gonna start with the position. I'm gonna tell you about the position of our unity, which has already been answered, and then we're gonna move in a few minutes here to the practice of our unity, which Christians gotta do a lot of work on that. All right, so concerning our position of unity, I'm gonna say it again. On the day of Pentecost, after Jesus had gone up, the Spirit of God came down. Here's the good news. Under the old covenant, he would come and go. Empower, go. Empower another Old Testament saint, go. Empower another Old Testament saint, go. But now, under the new covenant, guess what? Day of Pentecost, he came, and he went inside of them, and he stayed. The Holy Spirit, under the new covenant, is a permanent dwelling place. You are, if you're born again, sealed until the day of your redemption. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. All right, I want you to answer out loud. I'm gonna see how well you've been listening for the past months or years. I really believe in you guys. You're gonna get this right. You ready for this? Here's the question. Is the church a building? Good job, A+. Plus. The church is not a building made of bricks. The church is a body made of believers. The church is not a building. We love our buildings. That's not the church. You don't go to church, you are the church, right? Okay, and so the church is not a building made of bricks. It's a body made of believers. It is the body of Christ. The apostle Paul put it this way. He says, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. That's the body of Christ. Jews and Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now you need to understand that that word baptized there, baptizo in the Greek, he's not talking about, uh, by, the, by the way, the word baptizo means immersion. But he's not talking about water immersion there. He's not. One of the mistakes I made years ago in my hermeneutics or, or Bible interpretation is I would look up a word in the Greek and get a definition and then I would always apply that definition no matter where I was reading in the Greek New Testament or Hebrew in the Old Testament. That is a mistake. Now it's helpful to get the definitions, but ladies and gentlemen, the first thing in interpretation and hermeneutics is you always interpret a word within its context. He's not talking about water baptism there. Now, other places in the New Testament, he's talking about water baptism, praise the Lord. Baptism is by immersion. It's after you put your faith in Jesus Christ. If you haven't been baptized, I encourage you to go to our website. Make sure you live loud and proud and let everybody know that you are a Christian. 
Baptism always follows belief. It never comes before belief. Infant baptism is not in the Bible. He's not talking about water baptism here though. What is he talking about? He's talking about spiritual immersion. That's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 13. And so whenever that was, that time in your life, that beautiful day when you turned to Christ in genuine repentance and faith, here's what the Holy Spirit did, I love it. He took you and he immersed you. He placed you in the body of Christ, the universal body of Christ, the universal church. I like to call it the big C church. Listen, you may identify, you may belong to a local church called Calvary Port St. Lucie, but more important than that, you belong to the universal church. Praise God for that. That is your position. That prayer has been answered. Right, that means that you have brothers and sisters all over the world. You got brothers and sisters in Africa and in Asia and Australia, right, and, and um, over there in Europe and over there in North America, here in North America and down there in South America. And even you got brothers and sisters, if there are any down there, in Antarctica, right? Okay, so you got brothers and sisters all across the world. How many of you guys have ever met somebody for the first time and you just know they're a Christian? You know they're a born-again Christian. Why? Because the same Spirit of God that lives in you lives in that person. And so when I go to El Salvador in March, I'm gonna meet a bunch of Christians I don't even know, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna sense it. They're born-again believers. When I go to Mexico in July, I'm gonna sense it. They're born-again believers. Next year when I go to Africa, Lord willing, I'm gonna sense it. They're born-again believers. I don't care where you go in the world, born-again people have communion and unity with born-again people. It is our position. But as Christians, we've been, even though we've been unified positionally, that doesn't mean that we're doing a very good job being unified practically. How many of you guys know there's a lot of division in the body of Christ? So sad to me. So much division, whether it be between local churches Right, who fight and separate over secondary issues that grieves the Holy Spirit, or whether you're talking about individual believers who just can't get along, there is so much division in the body of Christ and we certainly need to repent. Why is there division in the body of Christ? Here's what Spurgeon said. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, we'll put it up on the screen. He says, why are we not one? Sin. Sin is the great dividing element. The perfectly holy would be perfectly united. The more saintly men are, the more they love their Lord and one another. And thus they come into closer union with each other. So what is Spurgeon saying here? What he's saying here is that the remedy for disunity is spiritual growth. If you're growing as a saint, you're yielded to the Holy Spirit, you're growing as a saint. Spurgeon's words, halfway down, is being saintly, okay? If you're growing as a saint, you're growing in the sanctification process, what's happening at the same time? Your love for the Lord is growing and your love for one another is growing and what's the result of all that growth and all that mutual love? It's practical unity. Here's what I know by experience. The easiest people to be around, the easiest people to get along with are born-again Christians who are yielded to the Holy Spirit and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it is right. The 
easiest people to be around. They're such a blessing to be around. They're born again, they're yielding every day to the Spirit, and they're filled with the Spirit. If you're new to Calvary, what does filled with the Spirit mean? The word filled is a metaphor. It simply means being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, right? Don't get drunk with wine wherein is excess. Okay, don't be under the influence of alcohol. He says, but be ye filled. Continue to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Stop being under this influence. Start being under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God, which means you have to submit. You have to yield every day to the Spirit of God. And then you're filled. And what's the result of being filled with the Spirit? The result is the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? We'll put it up on the screen. The fruit of the Spirit is, shout out that word there, love. How are they gonna know that we're Christians? They'll know we are Christians by our love. We're talking about practical unity here. And love is the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy, not just that, peace and patience and kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Listen, it's easy to be around people when that's flowing out of them. It's so easy to get on. What would happen in marriages if the husband was just flowing with this and the wife was just flowing with this? What would happen in, for kids if their parents, the fruit of the Spirit is just flowing out of them and there's that environment in that Christ-centered home. What would happen to these kids? What would happen to you, Christian boss, in your workplace if that described you every single day? Or, or ma'am, the ladies in here are bosses. What if that described you every single day? It'd be a lot better in your workplace. It'd be a lot better in your home. It'd be a lot better in your marriage. And so my admonition, my encouragement, my exhortation for practical unity is simply this. If you're not born again, get born again. If you're not yielding the Spirit every day, yield to the Holy Spirit every single day to his authority. And if you're not filled with the Holy Spirit, start asking him to fill you to overflowing with his presence. And then what's gonna happen? What naturally follows? It's the fruit of the Spirit. And all this love and all this joy and peace and the rest of it is flowing out of you. And what would happen? Man, what would happen? Can we just dream for a minute? What would happen in the church if that's the main characteristic of who we are? You know what would happen? Verse 21 and 23, the world would know that the Father sent the Son. Jesus' prayer would be answered. I pray for revival in this church. And I pray for a spiritual awakening in our community. But it, ladies and gentlemen, it's never gonna happen unless we start getting along. It's not gonna happen until we start getting along. You don't know what they did to me. If it's a six or higher on a scale of one to 10, sit down with that person and in love, if you have to have a third person, get a third person in there, keep it all peaceful. Sit down, talk it out. But if it's less than a six, like water off a duck's back, man, just let it go. Let it go. Well, they offended me. How many of you guys know you're gonna get offended in the church? We're people, crying out loud, we're people. If you are around Calvary for one day, somebody's gonna offend you. Welcome to church, everybody. But why are you here? Are you here for us or for him? Right? And so, listen, we gotta get this right. And we can actually help 
get Jesus' prayer answered, and we can help the world know the Father sent the Son. All right, stay with me to the end, but let's wrap this up. Look at verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory. We just sang about that a little while ago, remember? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. Verse 26. I, ha- I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In his high priestly prayer, what did Jesus pray for? Last point, he prayed for our beatific vision. Now I'll explain that in just a moment, but this is exactly what Jesus prayed for. That's the main theme of verses 24 through 26. So what does this mean? All right, if you have turned to Christ in repentance and faith, one day you're gonna have the beatific vision. The word beatific in Latin means blessed, happy, joyful. So if you know Christ, one day, guaranteed, you are gonna have the beatific vision, the blessed vision. What does that mean? That means that you, if you're listening to me right now, say amen here. You are going to see the Son in all his Glory, the same glory he shared with the Father from before the foundation of the world. You're gonna see him. In the book of Revelation, the Bible talks about the eternal state. And that's when God creates a new heavens and a new earth. How many of you guys know evil is not gonna continue on indefinitely here? No way, no way. All right, so... Um, I'm, a, I'm, I'm what you call theologically a dispensationalist when it comes to eschatology. That means that when it comes to end time events, I believe that the next event on the calendar is the rapture of the church. That's followed by seven years of all hell breaking loose on earth called the tribulation. And that is followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. That is followed, I believe, personally, I'm not an amillennialist, I'm a premillennialist. That means I believe that there's a thousand literal years of the reign of the son of David in Israel over the whole world, okay? And then after the final rebellion of Satan against the Lord, praise God, of course he loses and he's thrown into the lake of fire, bye-bye devil, praise God, we don't have to deal with him anymore. Okay, and then guess what happens? Revelation 21 and 22, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. Yeah, praise God. So God's gonna create a new heaven and a new earth. What does that mean? Peter told us he's gonna burn it all. He's gonna burn it all up. You say, what's gonna happen to me? If you know Christ, you'll be safe and sound and secure in the new Jerusalem. So he's gonna burn it all up, Then he's gonna create a new heavens, and he's gonna create a new earth, And then, Revelation 21 and 22, he's gonna bring down the new Jerusalem onto that new earth. And so we're gonna have new bodies, and we're gonna be living in the new Jerusalem on a new earth, under the new heavens and the new earth. Somebody says, are we gonna be able to explore space? (laughs) I don't know. Why does everybody keep asking me that question? I have no idea. 
I have no idea. But here's what I know. Even if God allows you to explore space, the final frontier, right? Here's what I know. Your, your heart's gonna long for home. You're gonna long to come back to the celestial city, the new Jerusalem. You know why? Because that's where Jesus is. That's where he is. And so, man, we're so looking forward to the celestial city. Why? Because the glory of Christ is on full display there. Look at what John said. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the who? The lamb, that's Jesus, in all his glory. And by its light will the nations walk. So the beautiful thing about the celestial city, the New Jerusalem, is that the glory of Christ is on full display and it's illuminating this entire city. John went on to say in the next chapter, here it is, beatific vision, it's biblical, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Ladies and gentlemen, stay with me to the end here, but, but, but check this out. Check this out. The best part of heaven, it's not the pearly gates. It's not the streets of gold. That's awesome. Pfft, nothing compared to what I'm getting to. It's not the crystal river. It's not the tree of life. The best part of heaven, if you know the Lord, is that you and I are gonna be able to see Christ's face in all its glory. Moses. Moses asked to see the glory of God. He says, show me your glory. And God said in Exodus 33, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. Do you understand how holy God is? And this is why sin is so horrible, even though many of us have gotten comfortable with sin. You gotta understand that God is infinitely holy. And so in our mortal bodies, if we were to see God's face, we would be consumed. But praise the Lord, God's got a resurrected body waiting for us. And when we are in our resurrected bodies, we're gonna be able to see God's face in all its glory. And we're gonna be able to worship and praise him forever and ever and not be consumed. Yes, that's something we look forward to. I can't remember if I said it in this service or the last two, but, but, but listen, many of you are looking forward to and planning for your vacation in the, in the summer. And praise the Lord, we all need some time off. But have you even given it a minute of thought of where you're gonna be forever and ever and ever? We gotta get away from these motivational speeches about earth and our life on earth. And we gotta get back to the Bible so that we can start dreaming and thinking about where we're gonna be forever and ever and ever with the Lord who created us and who redeemed us and who wants us to be fulfilled in him. I'm not talking about casual Christianity here because those two terms should never go together. I'm talking about being dedicated, lifelong followers of Jesus Christ who are making other disciples and getting people not just excited about Christ, but getting people to love Christ and follow Christ. And so regarding this beatific vision, Dr. Norman Geisler, my favorite theologian, he said it will be the ultimate aesthetic experience 
No mountain, however grand, no rainbow, however bright, no sunset, however blazing, will ever compare with this infinite blast of ultimate beauty. Now we see in a mirror dimly, then we'll see face to face. The question I have for you is do you have full assurance that one day you're gonna see the great I am? 